This is Backstory. I am Peter Ronoff. Plenty of voters are fed up with the political establishment. Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders say they are, too. But does that make them populists, as many pundits claim? Trump is the sort of the billionaire populist, uh, and then you've got Sanders, who's the socialist populist. Trump and Sanders are unlikely political bedfellows. But in the 19th century, during the original populist movement, economic distress forged some surprising political alliances. There are these sort of very moving moments of African-Americans working with poor white people who were Confederate soldiers. Today on Backstory, the history of populism, from the demagoguery of George Wallace to early forms of populist protest, like the smallpox riots in colonial Massachusetts. You have people throwing rocks and demonstrating against the richer people who could afford an inoculation. Coming up on Backstory, populism in America. Don't go away. Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Welcome to the show. I'm Ed Ayers, here with Peter Onuf. Hey, Ed. And Brian Ballow. Hey there, Ed. We're going to begin today with a word that's awfully popular these days. If you've been watching the 24-hour news networks in the last few months, chances are you've heard it a lot. Populist? Yes, absolutely. That's kind of the populist thing. Most of this country right now is populist on the far right and the far left. Populist from the Democrats means grow government. Populist from the conservative side means kind of shrink government. Populist rage. Populist economics. Populist. 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 What is the opposite of populist? What would be the uh, antithesis of that? Those are voices from Fox Business, CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News using the political buzzword populist to describe everything from Hillary Clinton's economic policies to Donald Trump's poll numbers. Now, of course, populism isn't a new idea in American politics, but hearing pundits throw the label on so many politicians and so many policies made us wonder, does anyone even know what it means to be a populist? The word comes from the Latin for the people. So we thought we would ask actual people. A cross-section of locals, tourists, and students in New York City's Washington Square Park. How would you define populism? Uh, that is an enormously hard question. Populism? I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. Uh, it's hard to describe exactly populism. There's too many definitions. You know, I, I probably come across the term when I'm looking at the New York Times or something, but I'm drawing a blank. I don't know. I don't know what a populist movement is. I can't define something that I don't know what the definition is. You're looking for one definition? Ed, I gotta admit, that's a pretty tough question to come up with one definition. How about an easier question, like, what ideas do you associate with populism? Would it be similar to, like, the colonists and the loyalists, because the colonists felt like they didn't have representation? Maybe, like, what's popular and best for, like, the most number of people? I don't want to say communism, but it sounds like... It doesn't sound like capitalism to me. Well, I think it was mostly a movement of the late uh, 19th century, I guess. Weren't they a group of farmers? Something like the Tea Party. Donald Trump. <laughs> Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders would be populist yeah. in the sense they have a lot of people rallying around them. <laughs> so, populism! What did you hear, Peter? 
Oh, Bernie Sanders. Yeah, yeah. I heard 19th century farmers, tea party. Well, how about colonists, uh, loyalists? There you go, Ed. You're all set. Well, that was very helpful, I thought. Uh, <laughs> in fact, some of those descriptions of populism actually, get this, have a basis in history. There is a tradition of popular discontent that dates all the way back to the patriots, and there was a political party of farmers in the late 19th century called the populist. But here's the problem. Populism is a very spongy concept, as we just heard. The Oxford English Dictionary defines populace as, quote, support for a representation of ordinary people or their views. But who the ordinary people are and what their views are changes throughout American history. So today on the show, we're going to look at what populism has meant to everyone from colonists to baby boomers. We'll find out what the term has to do with riots in the 18th century and one segregationist during the civil rights movement. We'll also hear what happened when the people took over a president's inauguration. Hey, Peter, Ed, here's an idea to begin to try to understand what this phrase populism is all about. Why don't we go back to the real historical movement called mm -hmm. the populist squarely at the end of your century, the 19th century. Yeah, it actually was a, a period that took uh, over 25 years uh, to grow. Unlike today's things, which seem to grow like mushrooms, right. this populist party— roots, It had roots. Deep it did roots, have roots like it. All across the South, all across the West, places you wouldn't expect to see a radical movement. But this is the largest third-party political revolt in American history, that with the populists, or as they call themselves— the People's Party. And the basic idea was that they believed that they were the real producers of the nation, they were feeding the nation, and yet the money system in particular was rigged against them so that what they grew was worth less every year. And no politicians were listening to them. Even the, though they were the majority, exactly. and they were, right? And so all their agenda grows out of these linked concerns. So they want to have a warehouse built in every county in the country so that they can store their crops and sell them when prices are advantageous. They want to have direct election of senators so that people will listen to the majority of the voice. They're interested in instituting an income tax so that the people who are preying on the producers will find themselves carrying their share. And unfortunately, sometimes they're looking for somebody to blame for all this. A lot of times it's the politicians, both the Democrats and Republicans, but other times it's immigrants, it's African-American people, it's anybody. It's Jewish bankers. It's Jewish bankers figure prominently in a lot of their cartoons, Brian. So you can see it's a deep, broad, dynamic movement that puts a lot of really important things on the table that we're still wrestling with today. And they thought history was on their side, They right? did think history, they, that's another reason they were befuddled. And Peter, they're speaking I'm from looking at you, Peter. They yeah. say that we are the great American tradition. Well, it's a sense of righteousness that we are the people articulating our power to rule and govern ourselves. We declared independence. It wasn't Thomas Jefferson. And it was the people who mobilized against British rule in places like Boston, the Boston so Tea Party. you're talking about mobs. Exactly. But this was a, a mob with dignity, a mob with a higher purpose. And that was to enable the people they represented, they embodied, literally embodied, to govern themselves. And that sounds so good. So, Brian, you may be wondering, why the heck don't we still have the populist party today? And ironically, they found a charismatic leader, William Jennings Bryan, 
who led them right into the Democratic Party, <laughs> and they watered down all that array of demands that they had to just one thing. Let us have silver instead of gold based for our currency, <laughs> and it will raise yeah. the value of our crops. And they gave away everything else. William Jennings Bryan loses the populist movement just disappears. So that's how people on the street can be so confused today. There was a populist movement. It was powerful, but it died very quickly, and the two big parties took over again. Yeah, and I'd I'd also underscore Peter's point about a tradition of this Mm -hmm, in American history. But you know that tradition really did continue into the 20th Mm -hmm. century? We don't have any capital P populist party that challenges the two parties effectively, but we do have populist movements. And we have a couple of them, in fact, several of them during the great economic crisis of the 1930s. We have Huey Long, the senator from Louisiana, and his share our wealth, hearkening right back to the man. call it share your wealth. (laughs) (laughs) Hearkening right back to the calls for a progressive income tax. And of all things, we have old people deciding that they're actually the people. Hundreds of thousands of them join these clubs called the Townsendites, and they they create clubs. This is not just so. What does they have in common? What, what, what's the what's the common theme across this? Brian? The common theme is that they feel they represent the good people of the country, and they feel that the political system, just like in Peter's period and in your period, is not representing the will of a vast segment of the population. The one thing that really changes in the 20th century is, I noticed for both of you guys, leaders were not terribly prominent in these movements. And as you move across the 20th century, more emphasis on the leader. Townsendite sounds like they're focusing on the leader, right? Less actual grassroots 25 years of organizing and mobilizing in local communities till you arrive at Bernie Sanders, and Donald Trump being labeled a populist, but where where are the clubs? Where are the movements? Where's the long-term set of grievances and people interacting with each other the way they did in the capital P movement? And Brian, one change I think that's taken place, though, and I think these we can identify elements in populism throughout the history of the populist tradition. I noticed this in, in what Ed said and what you said about the earlier 20th century, it's not against government necessarily because the American Revolution, which populists today celebrate as their ultimate source and inspiration, was a revolution to create a new government and to use that government in order to correct inequities, uh, market failures, market distortions, to enable people to live lives of dignity, to retire in comfort. These are all demands on the state, and that seems to be fading away in modern populism. But here's the commonality. The phrase is, make America great again. From all of these, across all the centuries, including up to today, they're making the same claim. Take our country back. There used to be a time when we had it. Somehow we've lost it. It's time to take a short break, but stay with us. When we get back, the people party at the White House and get a little out of hand. You're listening to Backstory. We'll be right back. Mm -hmm. 
We're back with Backstory. I'm Brian Bellow. I'm Peter Ronoff. And I'm Ed Ayers. Today on the show, we're looking at the media's favorite buzzword with an hour on populism in American history. So, Ed, that was a great discussion of populism in the late 19th century that you gave us before the break. I'd argue that there is a tradition in populism, popular discontent and anger, that goes back to the mob violence of the 18th century before the revolution and throughout American history, in fact. Uh, To help make that point, I've enlisted an old friend of mine, Paul Gillia, who is the world's leading expert on rioting and mob action in American history. Paul, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Peter. It's fun to be here. So, Paul, my working premise is that there's a connection between what you have studied at such great length and what's happening today. What do you think? I think the key connection that you're sort of thinking about, the reason why thinking about populism today set off a little light bulb over the top of your head, was that I think a lot of the populist upsurge that you see in politics today is a function of frustrations with the normal channels of government. That frustration in early America, often took the form of mob action. So, Paul, give us an example of rioting in the colonial period. Well, we can talk about the smallpox riots in Marblehead, Massachusetts in 1774. We all think of smallpox vaccination as being a major medical innovation and that this is occurring in the 18th century. The problem was is that vaccination in these days was to get a small case of the smallpox. You know, you, you essentially cut your skin and you put a little pustule in it and you get a mild case. Well, then you become contagious. And so what you have in, right on the eve of the Revolutionary War, you have people throwing rocks and, and demonstrating against the richer people who could afford inoculation for fear that people who get inoculated would have carried the disease and spread the disease. It's a great point. So there is a, a class dimension to this, Paul. Yes. And they felt that the government should step in and prevent this sort of inoculation. And instead of the government, the crowd stepped in. Where politics fails, according to the people, they get angry and they demand action. Right. Essentially, the magistrates, who would be the local officials in the community like Marblehead, uh, were not preventing these people from getting vaccinated. So the people got frustrated with the magistrates, who, by the way, were rich people, right, who might be getting vaccinated themselves. So what do you do? You know, you don't want to catch smallpox. And so the people rushed, you know, and rushed to the street, demonstrated, tear down a couple of outbuildings on these, of these connected to these rich, rich people. They also did things like burnt clothes that were hung up on the line. That, uh, they did things that they thought were going to protect them from infection. Paul, it's a fascinating example of those smallpox riots. But mobs uh, were rioting throughout this period, culminating in the revolution. Uh, But rioting didn't stop just because Americans won their independence, did it? No, rioting continues. And if you were to ask me, and I say this with a wince on my face. What is my favorite all-time riot, right? Yeah, no, and I say you it's don't condone because... them. I understand that. <laughs> Rioting is a, is a violent, can often be a violent activity. And of course, the riot I'm thinking about, or the series of riots I'm thinking about, are the Baltimore riots of 1812. And the Baltimore mm. riots of 1812 began where there was a newspaper which was publishing articles against the entry of the United States into the War of 1812. And the people of Baltimore felt that this violated the community's interest. And so they go to this office and they tear the building down. 
Hey, how about free speech, Paul? Yeah. <laughs> free speech. Freedom of the press. Well, this that's the point, isn't it? The community felt yeah. there shouldn't be free speech if right. you're opposing okay. this war, which, you know, uh, eventually a small group of militia intrude themselves and they take these people who had published this newspaper and mm -hmm. they put them in jail for safekeeping. And then the next night, the mob attacks the jail. And the mayor who supports the war steps in front of the mob. And he says to the mob, you know, guys, you can't do this. You can't break into the, to the jail. And somebody turns to him and says, Mayor Johnson, I know you very well, sort of identifying this kind of political, personal connection. He says, mm -hmm. there are times when the laws of the land must sleep and the laws of nature and reason prevail. And then the crowd bursts into the jail and there is no reason. They tear these guys apart. They beat these people to a pulp. They, they take pen knives and stick it into their cheeks. And they take hot candle grease and drip it into their eyes. And, and one guy who was being held in the jail, who had been a Revolutionary War general, says, gentlemen, gentlemen, stop, stop. You can't do this. And they just beat him to a pulp and he's killed. And I think wow. that the Baltimore riots represent a transition from an 18th century form of rioting to a 19th century form of rioting in which riots become mm -hmm. increasingly violent. Uh, Paul, Paul, this is very upsetting. Uh, now, this is nothing like what's happening now, uh, but there is an anger with, uh, with your political opponents or with the government and also a sense among populists that they do represent the people in some kind of fundamental, essential way. Yes, I think, I think you're right. I think that a lot of the frustration today uh, is the sense that the government is the enemy. Mm -hmm. uh, at least th that's certainly the frustration that exists on, on the right. right. What I find ironic about this is that in many ways, it's the emergence of the federal government especially, mm -hmm. which helps guide the transition from more violent expressions in popular disorder to less violent expressions right. of popular disorder in the 20th century. And what I find ironic is, is that these people who th believe that they are speaking for the people, by attacking the government, they're in a sense attacking the very safeguard which has created a much more peaceful, much more benign kind of community that allows for more open political expression of all kinds and of all stripes. Paul Gillia is a historian at the University of Oklahoma. He's the author of many books, including The Road to Mobocracy, Popular Disorder in New York City, 1763 to 1834. America's early tradition of mob violence instilled a fear of the people among the country's political elite. Career politicians viewed the masses as dangerous, and they thought the government should be in the hands of what they called the natural aristocracy. But that began to change in the 1820s when General Andrew Jackson rode into politics. He argued that the power of the government shouldn't reside with politicians, but with the people. Billing himself as a Washington outsider, the war hero catered to white, male, working-class voters. Jackson humbly bowed to crowds, and his supporters threw massive rallies in his honor. 
Jackson's appeals to the working class helped him capture the White House in 1828. But outgoing President John Quincy Adams and his supporters feared the potential downfall of the republic. The reins of power, after all, would be in the hands of the uncouth masses. For proof, Jackson's opponents looked no further than day one of his presidency and a legendary White House party. The inauguration of Andrew Jackson is one of the great pieces of American political folklore. It's the sort of thing that if you you don't remember anything else about Andrew Jackson, you probably remember all the stories about the the bash uh, at the White House. There was a huge crowd who came to see Andrew Jackson, this sort of controversial, popular champion, actually being sworn in. Like, you know, is it actually going to happen kind of thing? My name is Harry Watson. I'm a professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. My name is Jason Opel. I teach history at McGill University here in Montreal, Quebec. And I'm just finishing a book on Andrew Jackson. The inauguration was held on March 4th, 1829. All the reports are that thousands upon thousands of people poured into the city. All social classes were represented, taking up all the available hotel rooms. They were sleeping in their wagons and and everything else. That day, people came in to see their great hero. They would frequently say, you know, Jackson is, he's a general. He's on the field of battle for the people. And they all jammed into the area in front of the U.S. Capitol. He read his inaugural address, which almost nobody could hear. He gave a, you know, boring speech about, that's very, very vague. And then he rode a horse back to the White House down Pennsylvania Avenue. At the White House, the custom was to have a reception after the inauguration, and everyone expected that the people who would attend were people from the natural aristocracy, office holders, judges, congressmen, that sort of thing. And all those people did come, but it didn't stop there. A huge throng of people just went into the White House who had not been personally invited, but who felt personally invited because Andrew Jackson is their personal hero. And that's really the key. Right? They, they feel a personal connection to him. And, you know, there's a real kind of electric energy between Jackson and the people. There was no guard to hold them back. There were no police. Nobody had planned for 20,000 people. And that sounds like an awful lot. Sounds like an exaggeration to me. But still, uh, the crowd took over the house. They all wanted to see him, of course, so they stood on the chairs and they ruined the upholstery and they tracked mud all over the carpets. The china crashed to the floor, the glasses crashed to the floor, and the people who were there said that poor President Jackson was almost uh, squashed to death uh, by the press of people uh, trying to come in and shake his hand. Jackson himself was a very frail person, fairly old man. He had terrible injuries, uh, most of which were from duels, actually. And it was so bad that President Jackson had to be helped out, some say through a window, uh, and hustled back to his hotel. And then the uh, stewards, the people who were in charge of giving the party, had to carry the alcoholic punch out on the lawn so that the crowd would stream out there to uh, get its uh, free drinks and the the house could finally be uh, restored to order. 
And, you know, this is much exaggerated. I think people say, you know, one person said it's kind of like the storming of the Bastille prison or it's like the French Revolution. No, I mean, you know, there were some carpet was damaged and some furniture was damaged. Things got rowdy, but nothing too crazy. But the reason it becomes so significant is that some of Jackson's opponents said, oh, my God, civilization was teetering and, and on the verge of collapse. The rabble have really roused. From then on, the enemies of uh, populism, that is the rule of the ordinary folks, have pointed to Jackson and especially this chaotic party uh, as a demonstration that the popular will by itself is not the way to run anything. But, you know, I think this is the whole thing in a larger conversation about populism. So what? You know, so people went into the White House and had a good time. Then they went home and the next day they were hung over. So what? It's like, well, are they really more powerful? I mean, you know, I, this is why to some extent I'm skeptical of something that's, that's mostly about a style, how someone addresses you and not how public resources are going to be used, how the government is actually going to function. In the end, the Republic didn't collapse as Jackson's opponents had feared. But at the same time, the people didn't exactly rule the White House either. The white working-class men who helped vote Jackson into office still faced economic difficulties in the years ahead. Governing on behalf of the masses, it turned out, wasn't as clear-cut as speaking for them. We had help on that story from Harry Watson, a historian at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He's the author of Liberty and Power, The Politics of Jacksonian America. We also heard from historian Jason Opel at McGill University and the author of the forthcoming book, Avenging the People, Andrew Jackson, The Rule of Law and the Ordeal of American Nationhood, 1760s to 1830. We're going to return now to the populace at the end of the 19th century. We thought we'd take a moment to explain why their signature issue was, of all things, monetary policy, especially the place of silver in the economy. Now, this is hard to explain, so we're fortunate that back in the 1960s, a teacher named Henry Littlefield had a brilliant idea. He would use The Wizard of Oz, the novel, to explain populism to his glassy-eyed summer school students. Littlefield saw all kinds of connections between Oz and the populace. Now, to be honest, it's not clear that L. Frank Baum actually meant his children's book to be a populist parable, but that's beside the point. As Backstory producer Kelly Jones found out, The Wizard of Oz is still a helpful tool to explain the ins and outs of populist economics. Once you start looking for parallels, uh, it just becomes a matter of seek and ye shall find. This is Renjit Degay, an economic historian at SUNY Oswego, who wrote a book comparing populism and The Wizard of Oz. Parallels between the two begin on the very first page of the novel, in bleak and dismal Kansas. When Dorothy stood in the doorway and looked around, she could see nothing but the great gray prairie on every side. This was the scene in the late 1800s. The U.S. had experienced three economic depressions in quick succession, and Western farmers suffered the most. The sun had baked the plowed land into a gray mass, 
with little cracks running through it. Drought and pests destroyed farmers' crops. What they could produce wasn't very valuable because overproduction in the East brought prices down nationwide. To top it off, farmers were deeply in debt. They took out loans to buy land and equipment when times were good and at fixed rates. But when the prices fell, the national interest rate plummeted. Farmers' rates didn't change, though, so their debts soared. They're paying back those loans in dollars that are worth a lot more than the ones that they borrowed and spent already. Long economic story short, depression and deflation tore through the nation like, well, a twister. Farmers and other members of the emerging populist movement thought that if they could just reverse the deflation, the economy would recover. If money just were you know, showered from above from a helicopter, people would scoop up all that money and they would try to spend it, and that would raise the price of just about everything. That would bring you an in inflation. One 19th century version of a money-showering helicopter was what populists called the free coinage of silver. Yeah, let's talk about silver. In the 1880s and 1890s, the basic unit of currency was gold. An ounce of gold, actually, or an Oz of gold, abbreviated, if you will. Anyway, the country was on the gold standard, but gold was scarce. Populists figured a second monetary standard, backed by a more plentiful raw material, would expand the money supply. So they called on the government to start coining silver as well as gold. Which leads us to the next big parallel between Oz and the populist movement, the magic of bimetallism. Dorothy gets these silver shoes from the Wicked Witch of the East. That's right, silver shoes. No ruby slippers here. Those only appear in the movie. Dorothy, who represents the average American, has to walk to the political seat of Oz via that yellow brick road. That's the only way she can get back to Kansas. Or end deflation. So silver shoes on a yellow gold road. That's bimetallism. That's having gold and silver together. And they're more powerful together than they would be individually as a monetary standard. But bimetallism had its critics, embodied by one of the Wicked Witches. The Wicked Witch of the East represents Wall Street and, you know, kind of these evil, soulless uh, corporate interests uh, who the farmers definitely thought of as their enemy. That's because Wall Street rejected bimetallism as a reckless solution that would make prices spike uncontrollably. In the story, Western farmers take the shape of the scarecrow, duped into thinking he doesn't have a brain. With the thoughts you'd be thinking you could be another Lincoln if you only had a brain. The Tin Man stands for industrial workers who faced an almost 25% unemployment rate in the early 1890s. I only had a heart. I were king of the forest. And then there's the Lion, who, coincidentally, rhymes with William Jennings Bryan the politician who ran for president three times, most notably in 1896, on a platform of free coinage of silver, and really became identified with that movement. Bryan was a Democrat, not a populist. But the populists nominated him for president because he was an ardent silverite. So lions are known for their roar. Bryan was known for his oratory. He gave a speech at the Democratic Convention in 1896, uh, which is known as the Cross of Gold speech. We will fight them to the uttermost. He mostly talked about how the gold standard was just crippling this economy, and he 
famously concluded, you shall not crucify mankind on a cross of gold. Today, one way the government fights deflation is by printing more money. But that was a radical idea in the 1890s, too radical for populists. They were deeply suspicious of fiat money, or currency that isn't tied to something physical like precious metals. So back in Oz and marching together under the banner of bimetallism, Dorothy and her crew set off for the Emerald City, which, in the book, isn't actually emerald. The wizard forces everyone to wear green sunglasses, which give the all-white city a green tinge. Uh, If you take off the glasses, then suddenly it's no longer emerald. Just like our fiat money of the 19th century, if everybody just decides, you know, these are pieces of paper, these don't really represent real value, then suddenly, you know, our monetary system breaks down. In the end, our bimetallic heroine kills the Wicked Witch of the West, who stands for the drought, with a bucket of water, thus bringing the crops back to life. The wizard takes off, leaving Oz in the hands of Dorothy's capable companions. And, you know, it's a happy ending. We don't see exactly how they do ruling the land of Oz, but you're led to expect that it's going to be good. Except that's the Hollywood ending. The book and the movement didn't turn out so well. Deflation finally ended after the 1896 election with huge discoveries of gold in Alaska and the Yukon. So the free silver issue pretty much disappears with the discovery of all this gold. And it's barely heard from again. In the book, as Dorothy flies home to Kansas, her silver shoes slip off her feet and are lost forever in the desert. After losing the presidency to Republican William McKinley, William Jennings Bryan toned down his passion for silver. Even when Bryan runs in 1900, it's not a very compelling issue. He still talks about it, but it doesn't get a lot of traction. He lost his roar. (laughs) Sorry. Or he had to roar about something else. (laughs) He was still roaring, but I don't know how many people were listening. Silver and gold, silver and gold, everyone wishes... Backstory producer Kelly Jones brought us that story. She had help from Lynchett Gay, a professor of economic history at the State University of New York, Oswego, and the author of The Historian's Wizard of Oz, reading L. Frank Baum's classic as a political and monetary allegory. It's time for us to take another break. When we get back... Was 1960s segregationist George Wallace a populist? You're listening to Backstory. We'll be back in a minute. This is Backstory. I'm Peter Ronoff. I'm Brian Ballow. And I'm Ed Ayers. We're spending the hour today exploring the history of populism in America. Now, if Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders supposedly carry the torch for modern-day populism, as Chuck Todd of Meet the Press declared this summer... They are surging in the polls, thanks to two very different strains of a classical American political movement, populism. The two candidates also carry the torch for a particular aspect of populism. Sanders supporters are likely to be white. Trump supporters are also more likely to be white. This is a long-standing trend, and most Americans today who know anything about 19th century populism probably think of it as a white movement. But historian Omar Ali says that African Americans had their own populist movement, the Colored Farmers Alliance. Black populism developed in the South after the failure of Reconstruction. And when black farmers and sharecroppers later joined forces with poor whites, they created a movement 
that almost upended Southern politics. It was an independent black political movement that lasts over the course of basically 1886 to about 1900. Uh, what they did is they basically built off of the institutions that were created during Reconstruction, the black church, mutual aid organizations, mm-hmm. uh, fraternal orders. So they basically want to teach better farming techniques, better household maintenance. Uh, so they're it, helping themselves rather than asking or demanding something from exactly. white people? That's uh-huh. right. That's right. They're, they're, they're helping themselves. And in some ways, they were very self-conscious and deliberate in not being demanding of anybody except themselves because that was at a basic level, it was a way of keeping themselves protected from attacks. Just the fact black people coming together as an independent grouping yeah. could be seen and was seen at times as a threat. So the populism, both of white and black, uh, takes a long time to marinate, sort of grows up in the South in the 1870s and 1880s, as you're telling us. Mm-hmm. But then they realize if they're going to accomplish some of the things they want to accomplish, they're going to have to enter the political world, right? That's right. You know, by 1890, it becomes clear that this sort of self-help strategy is can only take you so far. There's only right, so much right. that we can do sort of black people saying cooperatively within our own communities. They said, okay, let's work with these white populists and see if we can challenge the Democratic Party in the South. Uh, the Republican Party was the party of Lincoln. It was a party of, that African-Americans mostly affiliated with. So in some ways, there were these fusions that took place, African-Americans working in the Republican Party in alliance with the People's Party. And that's what happens in North Carolina is they basically are able to take over government, which is extraordinary. Right, right. They uh, win the state legislature in 1894. Uh, and then the governors in 1896. And they try to institute some things, funding for public education. They get rid of or they try to get rid of certain obstacles in terms of the voting process. But it's a really short period that they're really in power. Who opposed that? That sounds great. <laughs> the Democratic Party was a party of white supremacy, but it was a party of the upper class's interests. And so poor and working class white people joined for this very brief moment with African-Americans to oppose that politic. So they do this remarkable thing. They they fuse, they unify, they win, and then what happens? So they take over, and this was seen as an incredible threat to the status quo. And, you know, the white establishment would not allow this to be repeated. So soon thereafter, there's a a coup d'etat, essentially, in 1898, local government in Wilmington, North Carolina. It's an, a violent overthrow of the government there. They basically intimidated and threatened elected officials to either uh, resign or they just killed them. It was called a riot, the Wilmington Riot of, of 1898, but really it was a massacre, an attack on the black community. And it signals the end of black populism in North Carolina although populism, black populism continues in other places like in Texas for a couple more years. But basically the story is all but over in North Carolina by 1898. So what you're saying is it's not that populism had this streak of intolerance or intrinsic failure as much as it was a threat to the people who ran things. And they were just determined that you wouldn't have an alliance of poor people across racial lines. That's right. That's right. You know, I, I think that what we learn by studying this period is that history can go 
in different directions. And there are these sort of very moving moments of African-Americans working with poor white people who were, you know, Confederate soldiers, and they respected each other to some degree on the ground. And those efforts to try to bring poor people together across the racial divide were killed off by propaganda, by violence. And I think that it's helpful to think of these movements as part of a deep underground wells of of democracy, if you will, that every once in a while come out of the ground. And this was one of those moments. And it would continue in the South. It wasn't completely killed off. And I think that these are some of the tributaries that flow into the civil rights movement, which is also, if you try to think of things that seem unlikely in American history, that the people who have the least political power and have been at the brunt of all this violence somehow find it within themselves to mobilize for the greatest moral revolution in American history. I, I think there's a direct connection to the civil rights struggle. This is what you see. I mean, Jim Crow, the concept of legal um, disfranchisement and segregation of African Americans, is a direct response to populism. It's really, in some ways, trying to make sure that never again will we have black people and white people come together in the political arena. And so I think that there's more opportunities to learn about possibilities by looking at these failed movements. Um, This was a movement that clearly failed at that moment, and there was a lot of fear, and so it went really underground. Omar Ali is a historian at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, and author of In the Lion's Mouth, Black Populism in the New South, 1886 to 1900. If you're just joining us, this is Backstory. And today we're talking about the history of American populism. Hey, guys, we got a call from Denver, and it's Heather. Heather, welcome to Backstory. Thank you. It's fun to be here. you got a question for us. Lay it on. Okay. Well, I've been reading a book called uh, Railroaded by Richard White. It's about the mm-hmm. transcontinental railroads. In the late 19th century, the railroad corporations were the big bad guys. Um, yep. But I, what I found out is that sometimes they supported populist candidates if they thought that the populists policies would hurt their rival corporations, kind of the, mm-hmm. the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Sure, so, sure. So I'm wondering, how long can a populist movement actually stay populist before it gets co-opted by the powerful? How about it? Genuine populism out there, guys. Yeah. The populism that uh, Heather's actually asking about did start in an authentic way, and it took it a long uh-huh. time to develop. And uh, I think it's been a major topic of the discussion of the history of populism about exactly when did populism lose its soul. And people see it at different times for different subjects. You know, from the Af- perspective of African Americans, it lost its soul pretty quickly. They, they yeah. really started excluding yeah. African Americans. Uh, from the viewpoint of women, they were excluded pretty early on. So, Heather, I think the question is, as soon as populism stopped being a sort of self-help movement and went into the political sphere, it was very hard for it to resist the siren of political seduction. And Heather, let's take the other side of your equation. I agree with Ed. Those corporate interests, they're not one set of interests. Let's go back to your topic Mm -hmm. of railroads. 
If you were a department store that was beginning to get into shipping goods around the country and beginning to take advantage of postal delivery to rural areas, you didn't want high railroad rates. You wanted to bust those railroads. The whole notion that there was one corporate interest, I think, is one of the great myths or of at, American history. Or as Heather points out, that there was even one railroad interest. Or there was <laughs> even one railroad. You want to talk about a cutthroat business. These people would do anything for comparative advantage. Yeah, and smart businessmen always played popular opinion in ways that were going to help their bottom line. And the same goes for smart politicians at the beginning of American national history. I think a lot of populist movements as we know them begin with fractures in the elite, that is between loyalists and patriots in the run-up to the revolution. Uh, There was popular action on the streets, Heather, uh, directed toward a variety of things, from uh, whorehouses and to other issues that got the people riled up. Uh, But the savvy patriot leaders saw that this was a force that could be turned against the British imperial regime. So I I think we have to look at at it more as an interactive phenomenon, maybe not from the very beginning, uh, because there's local grassroots mobilization, as Ed's suggesting, but it is always vulnerable to appropriation and co-optation. Well, do you think that a really a populist movement can't really get anywhere until it somehow gets into the power structure? I think, you know, to go back to the case of the railroads, Brian's point of view about shippers. Also, if you're uh, a voter... What you want is the darn railroad to come to your county. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because if absolutely. it doesn't, you have no prospect of economic prosperity coming forward. So I think that the paradox here is that populism, which we see as kind of opposed to interest, has to become popular in order to accomplish its goals. And as soon as it does, it enters a sphere that it doesn't control. Yep. Yeah. Hey, Heather, are you happy? I'm happy. And that's what we look for <laughs> at Backstory. That was terrific. Okay, great. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye. Bye. If you have a question for us about an upcoming topic, leave a message on Facebook or our website, backstoryradio.org. You can also tweet us at Backstory Radio. We have shows coming up on the history of disability in America and the legacy of the Confederacy. We're going to end the hour with the 2016 presidential campaign and Republican candidate Donald Trump. In some ways, Trump embodies a uniquely 21st century style of populism. His success is fueled as much by reality TV in the 24-hour news cycle as it is by his anti-immigrant message. The U.S. has become a dumping ground for everybody else's problems. When Mexico sends its people... They're not sending their best. They're sending people that have lots of problems. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. Even Donald Trump's bravado has a history. He's the latest figure in one strand of populism, that of the rhetoric-fueled, angry populist. They're everywhere in American history, and they tend to pop up wherever there's rapid social change or economic dislocation. This is Jamel Bowie chief political correspondent for Slate. 
He says Donald Trump bears a strong resemblance to one 20th century populist demagogue in particular. That's Alabama's George Wallace. Wallace became a national political figure during the civil rights movement. It's actually a little funny to me how, for how important Wallace was, um, how little a lot of people know anything about him. But Wallace was governor of Alabama. He famously, in his inauguration speech in 1963, I believe, famously said, And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. And, and, so, and so far, the people know anything about Wallace. I think that is the thing that they know. An explicit champion of the, um, the anti-integration white South. But I, I think less known about Wallace is how he parlayed reactions to civil rights, tapping into broader anxieties and fears among a lot of Americans into um, a pretty successful third-party campaign in 1968 and a reasonably successful campaign for the Democratic nomination in 1972. Yeah, and it's important to remind folks that Wallace got on the national political map by registering with, you know, alienated voters and places like Wisconsin, which are certainly not south of the Mason-Dixon line. That's right. Not just Wisconsin, but also California. I mean, early on in his 68 campaign, no one thought he'd be able to get the 100,000 signatures necessary to get on the Democratic primary ballot, but he managed it. Uh, his appeal really did extend throughout the United States, Wisconsin, California, Maryland. But one thing I had forgotten, just how much Wallace's appeal was stylistic. A lot of his strength, especially on the campaign trail and his presidential campaigns, was really just his ability um, to entertain people. He was a showman. Uh, he could uh, build an intimate connection with the crowds he spoke to. You know, Wallace actually had a sense of humor. I mean, I want you to listen to this clip. He's talking to the National Press Club. And as you know, that club had a long history of excluding women. But you ladies and gentlemen, take heart, gentlemen. I reckon there's some ladies here. I see by the paper that uh, not many ladies are here. You're having the same fight we have in some quarters. Uh, but it's, it's very bad for the folk to try to destroy your traditions <laughs> and your customs. But you got to get in the mainstream. And it's interesting that even the press that covered him, um, quite a few of the journalists who were around him may have despised his politics, but liked him personally very much. There he was connected with people. Right. There's something very endearing about him. And what about reading the people or blowing with the political winds, if you will? Again, this is another similarity between the two figures. But you know, early on in Trump's rise in the Republican primary, you had Republicans like Jeb Bush say openly and, and with a lot of irritation that Trump was no conservative. Now Trump says, no, I'm a Republican, I'm a conservative, just like everyone else in this race. And it's very clear that he, more than anything, is an opportunist. And you can say the same about Wallace. Um, Wallace started his career as basically a New Deal Democrat, um, someone who wanted to use government at the national and at the state level. To, he was labeled a progressive. Right. He was a progressive. But when, when he saw where the wind was blowing, when he saw how audiences reacted to uh, pro-segregation messages in the wake of Brown v. Board, his broader national message was very much taking those segregationist and anti-civil rights themes and uh, kind of taking the explicit racial element away from them and leaving 
something that's still very clearly read as anti-black resentment, but didn't read as racist in the same way. This, and I think the climate in our country of those in the top echelons of our government kowtowing to uh, those who have openly and willfully violated the law has uh, made it, of course, unsafe for the average citizen to walk the streets of the large cities of our nation and in the parks. And when well, I become you think, president, along with many others, that Donald Trump is perhaps burning bright now, but he's, he's going to flame out. We certainly know that uh, George Wallace was not elected president in 68 or 72. I'm curious to know, given the similarities between Wallace and Trump, what contributions Wallace made to the politics of his time and what do you think the long-term impact of Trump is going to be, even if he doesn't get the nomination? So, so Wallace's long-term impact and, and the really the immediate mark he made in the 68 race was that he signaled to Richard Nixon, who by this point was the Republican nominee, that there was something to this message of civil rights resentment, that if you could further drain it of its racial content and turn it into something um, still evocative of those anxieties, you could succeed, you could win votes. Mm -hmm. And so Wallace in 1964 was attacking civil rights protesters as lawless, as people who had no regard for rule of law and law and order. Nixon in 1968 is pretty much lifting that language wholesale. And Nixon ran a series of television ads that year where, for instance, he showed a middle-class white woman walking down the street uh, at night, and then you heard footsteps. Crimes of violence in the United States have almost doubled in recent years. Freedom from fear is a basic right of every American. We must restore it. And you hear, you know, vote for Nixon. He's tough on crime. Right, right. And so the question, I think, for 2015 and 2016 is who is Nixon? Um, who is the figure who sees Trump's appeal to nativist elements of the Republican Party, nativist elements of the American electorate, um, and will try to co-opt them in, in some way, shape, or form? So who's the next... Uh, Donald Trump, according to Jamel Bowie. I think Cruz might try to play the role, but Cruz, unlike Nixon, doesn't have that kind of broad appeal in the Republican Party. And so my hunch is that Trumpism, such that it exists, may be marginalized with Trump. But I'll add, sort of as a you know, a caveat, that Trump may have mobilized or energized a new segment of voters, and who knows what they're going to do. Jamel Bowie is the chief political correspondent for Slate. We'll link to his article, Our George Wallace, on our website. Sweet popularity, glorious popularity. That's going to do it for us today. Tell us what you think of this episode on our website. You'll find us at backstoryradio.org. While you're there, weigh in on our upcoming shows on the history of disability and on the memory of the Confederacy. Leave a message or send email to backstory at virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Kelly Jones, Emily Gaddick, and Bruce Wallace. Jamal Milner is our engineer. 
We have help from Melissa Gismondi. Special thanks this week to Quentin Taylor at Rogers State University and to our Voices of the People, George Jocknowitz, Jacob Linden, Margaret Arapor, Max Reddig, Ziggy Benheim, Christian Goler, Kevin Coleman, Alicia Sidasi, Sia Bahal, and Natalie Risk. Backstory's executive producer is Andrew Windham. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional funding is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment, and by History Channel, history made every day. Brian Ballow is professor of history at the University of Virginia. Peter Onuf is professor of history emeritus at UVA and senior research fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is professor of the humanities and president emeritus at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Backstory is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.